0: It's a life-threatening issue that I'm dealing with, and it's also a voice-threatening issue. It's a, it's a tumor related to, uh, that's in my throat that, that threatens to take my voice away. And I said, here I am trying to be a servant, an instrument, quite literally in your hands, God, and you're going to take that instrument away? And so I actually started to do, I started to make threats, which how embarrassing is this? But I was just like, well, God, if you're gonna take my voice away, then I'm not gonna do any callings in church and I'm not gonna do concerts anymore. And I'm not gonna be social. I'm just gonna become a hermit.
1: Welcome to Fortune and Faith, a show about members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and how their faith influenced and oftentimes sustained them as they persevere through obstacles, failures, and challenges on their quest for success. I'm Jason Tang. On today's episode, as one of the members of the renowned music group, The Piano Guys, Stephen Sharp Nelson shares how the group came to be, how early success almost cost him his family, and how a recent health scare is making him reevaluate everything. With over two billion views on YouTube, multiple number one albums on the Billboard music charts, and sold out concerts all over the world, the musical group The Piano Guys inspire others through their creative renditions, original scores, and their palpable love of music. But before The Guys, and there are four of them, ever became viral sensations, they're all just normal dads in a normal world doing normal things. And today we're talking with just one of the guys known as The Cello Guy. Stephen Sharp Nelson is born and raised in Salt Lake City, Utah, to a very musically inclined family. His dad is an optometrist by day, but a violist at all other times and is a strong advocate of classical music. His mother is a trained opera singer who sacrifices her own ambitions to help raise Steven and his five other siblings. And just as all musical loving parents do, they sign their children up for lessons and then offer them choices and consequences.
0: My dad believed in freedom of choice. <clears throat> he gave me two choices. <laughs> he said, you can play a classically stringed instrument and eat or not. Those were my two choices. So that's kind of, I chose to eat, which I, which I credit much of my survival on today. Uh, but you know, as a six year old kid, what six-year-old kid? There are exceptions. My wife is one of them. Says I want to play a really hard instrument that sounds awful for three years before it actually sounds any good. What's what kid says that again? Besides my one wife who wants the, to eat. Yeah, right. One that wants to eat. So, <laughs> so uh, he said you could choose any instrument bef- uh, that's that's classical, and that was much to my chagrin because I wanted to be a drummer. And I'm an ADHD. I have the superpower of ADHD. I love my ADHD superpower, and I've learned that drums are actually really key to a success. Uh, key to success in ADHD, we could talk about that. But so I tried to convince him that I could pick the drums, and he's like, "No." And I was a pretty precocious kid, so I went to my Encyclopaedia Britannica, and I showed him that, hey. Neanderthals were playing rocks as drum instruments far before string instruments were ever in existence. You know, this must qualify, but he didn't go for it. So he brought home a violin and my brother and I are Irish twins. We're less than a year apart. He was playing violin and he was so good at it. And I was in his shadow and my ADHD nature didn't really allow me to stand with that instrument in my chin. It just something sensory bothered me about it. So after a year, I was like, I can't do this anymore. I quit. My dad's like, okay. I was like, wow, that was easy. I wish I would have done that earlier. And the next day he brings home a cello. And I said, I quit. He said, yeah, you quit the violin. Here's your next instrument. So I sit with that instrument. And I will tell you, Jason, it is a moment I will never forget, even as a seven-year-old. I remember sitting with that instrument against my, it, it sits against your heart. And as I played those low notes, it resonated throughout my entire soul. And I had felt like I had rekindled a friendship that I had always known but forgotten. And it was sort of this pre-mortal almost connection I had with this instrument. And I knew it was my instrument. I knew it. I could perceive it. Now, even though I threatened to quit many times in my life, my dad always called my bluff because he could sense it too. So I grew up in a family where everybody played an instrument. That was a requirement. My mom wanted us to all play piano. and My dad wanted us to all play string instruments. The three olders played piano and never made it to a string instrument. So my dad's like, this isn't working. We're going to go to string instruments. So the younger three all play string instruments. I married a string player. We met in the School of Music at the University of Utah. She is my soulmate and true love and inspiration in my life. She is a far better musician than I have ever dreamed of being. She plays every instrument imaginable. So that's a really fun connection. And um, so I grew up saturated In music, we had it always playing in the home, primarily classical music. And my father was so passionate about it that I couldn't help but pick up on it myself. My father was the intellectual side of the understanding of music, whereas my mother was the, was the emotional side of music. She could sing notes that would make people cry. And I, and I saw that and thought, wow, I cannot believe music can be that powerful. And I also can't believe that music can be so deep intellectually. So I had this great marriage of these two, this amalgam of these two approaches to music the intellectual and the spiritual side emotional side and that is what i grew up in so i really couldn't help but become a musician eventually that didn't mean that i was aspiring to be a musician because i was worried about living on a shoestring life right you know i the the uh, do you know what the difference between a large pizza and a professional musician is tell me uh the large pizza can feed a family of four <laughs> biggest difference. Um, And so I was worried about that. So I did pre-med. I did music. I did a double major, music and pre-med. And I was going to follow in my father's footsteps. And one day I woke up and I felt like it was sort of a a calling from God that was like, you're not supposed to be a doctor. That's not your path. And I felt felt it so strongly that I abandoned pre-med and really dug into music. But then I didn't know what I could do for making money. So I actually used my ADHD brain and went vocationally crazy and signed up with a venture capital firm and loved that. I mean, I so I got two master's degrees, did venture capital, and I was all over the place vocationally. But I was always doing music. I was always moonlighting as a musician. I never gave it up. It was always there. And on nights and weekends, I would often be gigging or um, jamming or composing. I loved composition. That's what lit me on fire when I was struggling for motivation when I was a kid. So, and then all of a sudden, um, I recognized that with all of this moonlighting, I had connected with so many musicians that I had this wonderful network. And among that network was a guy named John Schmidt, who had a very successful localized career in piano performance and in piano in, in entertaining an audience, not just playing music for them, but entertaining them. He was a great entertainer. And I asked him if I, I was 15 at the time when I met him, and I asked oh, him wow. if I could just play on one of his songs. And, and he gave me a chance, which says a lot about John. And he was, he's, uh, I joke, when I was 15, he was 47, I remember. But he's <laughs> only about 11 years older. But you know how that gap can really if, seem big. When you're
1: 15, for sure. Yeah,
0: exactly. So he was ancient. But um, we started playing, and I started playing two songs, then three songs, then four. He gave me a vocal mic. <laughs> he's probably regretted it ever since. So then all of a sudden, we developed this funny Smothers Brothers a uh, 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 us mother's brother's uh, banter back and forth. And there was this piano cello rivalry. And I think people really connected to us because we were so real. We never pretended to be more than we are because we know we're not world-class musicians. There's way better pianists and cellists out there. We were just kind of like ourselves and we were goofy and we were dorky and and we would just play music from our heart. And that somehow resonated with people. And we began making YouTube videos in an effort to try to sell pianos for Paul Anderson's Piano Store, who was one of the piano guys. And that failed miserably. We never sold a piano, but our music videos took off and they went viral. And all of a sudden we were touring the world, signed with Sony, you know, 10 albums, 12 albums. I don't even know how many it is right now. Billions of views. We, we, we garner 3 million views every day. So just to give you a perspective that every 10 minutes, that's a basketball arena sized wow. amount of people. every 10 minutes, that's how many people are experiencing our content. And honestly, um, Jason, really the X factor has just been us trying to be prayerful and trying to be spiritual about the approach to this and understanding that this is part of the work that we have to do on the earth. Like everybody has their own work and we've just sort of turned it over to God as best we can, like Beethoven and Bach did. And he's just taken this way farther than we ever could.
1: You gave me the whole uh, story in, in 10 minutes, but we, we need that's, to get into some the of the details. Version. There yeah, it is. <laughs> now we can break
0: it all down. I know you didn't want to go out of sequence, but that's at least like the overview. So people exactly. will be like, do I want to, do I want to listen to the they rest They want to of stay tuned. They're,
1: they're excited. I mean, your name already shows enough <laughs> excitement. I think people will be really excited for this episode. But let's, let's go back to when you're a teenager. I mean, one, you, you know, you, you kind of joke that your dad said, hey, you're playing the, this instrument or you're not eating. But eventually, <laughs> as all teenagers, you really do have a choice. Yeah. And you stuck well, with it. But why did you stick with it? Because I know from my experience I, I didn't stick with it. I was more interested in sports, which got me nowhere well, either. But
0: That's typical. That's that's typical of our age though, right? Again, you're fighting against this instrument and every one of your friends is out playing soccer. You're like, why would I be doing this when I could be doing that? And uh, honestly, finding self-motivation came pretty late in the game for me. But I will tell you, my father was good at two things. One is incentives. Now, he called them incentives. Sometimes I'd call them threats. But (laughs) he was really good at incentives where my privileges were contingent upon my practicing. And uh, those were financial uh, things. Those were, um, I mean, even like just simple things, even treats and uh, things it wasn't that he was withholding things that he shouldn't withhold as a, as a loving father. He was a very, he was a very, very loving father. Oh my goodness. So, I mean, magnanimous in his love uh, for us as his kids. And um, it was just that he knew the wisdom of getting us to stay committed to this. And he used every tool he could. The other thing he did was this. he, I don't know how we figured this out, Jason. I don't know. And I'm trying to do it with my own kids because all my own kids, it's a requirement for them to play a musical instrument. That's how we teach them to work. We don't have any farms these days. So we got to do something to teach them to work. And my father was so good at positive association. Let me explain that. he would He would understand that every Wednesday when I'd go to my cello lesson right after school, it was hard because I had a teacher that was a really famous, not famous, not famous, very was kind of famous he was a very illustrious cellist and he was so good but he was not a very good teacher because he was just really really good at the cello but he was trying to help me be better and he was intimidating and it was scary and i was this little punk kid so my dad would go to 7-eleven before the lesson and he'd say pick anything you want now in my family we don't do that we don't do treat runs we don't that's not typical so he understood that if I could look forward to picking something out at 7 Eleven on Wednesdays after school, I could look forward to Wednesdays instead of cringe and and um loathe them and be so worried about them, you know, and in in weak anticipation of them. So he also did that with he understood as my motivation waned as girls started to get cute, you know, like when yep. we're like, hey, wow, these girls are starting to get cute. He he rubbed his chin and he thought, hmm. I think I could, I think I could attach Leverage these things. He actually formed a string quartet. He coached a string quartet. That's, that's, um, four musicians for you that don't know what a quartet is. You know, I, I, always get asked in at weddings, you know, how many people in your quartet? And you're like, <laughs> oh, okay. So, um, he formed a string quartet. It was my brother and I, and then two cute girls on the other side playing violin. And I was like, okay, I'm motivated to practice now.
1: I'm in. <laughs> So Are we not he, doing two practices,
0: dad? So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I love that. So you can now understand that my dad understood that he couldn't just force me to love an instrument, but he could guide me in appreciating what it's doing for me by associating positive things with it, socially getting me engaged socially with it, but also offering me incentives before I could be mature enough to let the work and the progress be an incentive unto itself.
1: I think what's interesting too is that you're telling me that you're 15 Uh, when you met John Schmidt and a lot of times when we're that age we're just going to do the minimum that's asked of us you look like you're doing a little bit more than just what's the minimum because you're going out and you're trying to do something with someone that you had kind of just met as you uh, Mm -hmm. were gigging and stuff where does that come from that you are actually trying to go out and proactively uh, you know make things happen
0: well, first thing, kudos to you, Jason, because that's a question I've never been asked before. But I, I find it extremely insightful. I think that's a wonderful question because you're right. At that age, it is the. I mean, I've got four kids right now. There's definite bare minimum-ish stuff going on, and um, you know what it was for me? It was finding what I, w- I what I could be passionate about within music, and for me, that was improvisation. It because classical music taught me toxic perfectionism in a very dangerous way and sheet music and confinement within somebody else's repertoire. But when I started playing with John Schmidt and a couple other artists akin to him, I found that I would show up and they'd be like, I don't have sheet music because I don't, I can't write sheet music. They're, they're sort of by ear musicians. Um, and so they would just say, make it up. And I was like, okay, I got to go out on stage with my cello and make up my cello part. Nobody has taught me how to do that. It's not in standard cello curriculum, and that challenge presented something that was so interesting and intriguing to me. And I couldn't do the bare minimum anymore, so I actually had to really push myself. And even at that age, I was doing bare minimum in a lot of things, like you know English class in high school, for instance, right. or gym. But but um, you know, in the book report, you know of Wuthering Heights that I couldn't stand. You know, <laughs> I was doing bare minimum in that. But once you find your groove, your flow and what you're passionate about, you will go to great lengths to explore it. Beethoven once said, don't merely just practice your art, force your way into its secrets. And when you do that, you it it'll raise you to the divine. And 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 that that's where I was feeling that flow, that sliver of divinity I was accessing, even at that age, precocious or not, I don't know, was really important for me to access the desire and the motivation to push harder than the bare minimum
1: so moving this ahead then because obviously it's it's the youtube videos that really put you guys on the map but talk about how everyone knows you about the because of the piano guys but that was actually a store so talk about how that all came about because that's (laughs) a really interesting story
0: so John and I were performing together and, um, John was playing a gig down in, in southern Utah, the southern part of Utah. And he had a, a the, there was a local piano store in the area that he walked into because he needed to practice on a piano while they were setting up for the concert. So we asked the piano store owner, Paul, hey, can I just practice on one of your pianos? And, and he's like, sure, yeah, absolutely. And Paul at the time was growing tired of advertising his pianos the same way everybody else was selling them. And YouTube and social media was just just burgeoning into light. You know, it's just sort of uh, sun rising at that So this that
1: is like point. early 2000s?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, it actually was, I would say that was probably in the, yeah, like mid 2000s. Okay. In late 2000s, and uh, or the first decade of that. And um, Paul said, I've got this idea, John. Could I film you playing on my store pianos and we'll upload the videos that I filmed to this new YouTube channel I've called The Piano Guys, I've created and called The Piano Guys, and we'll sell tons of pianos just by featuring them in fun music videos. You know, he had this sort of obsession about it and he wanted to take pianos and cellos and put them in crazy places like a beach, a cliff, uh, a, a speeding train, you know, and we were, we were like, this is sounds fun. Let's do it. And we did it on the side thinking that it would go nowhere, just trying to help out a friend to sell pianos, you know? And then all of a sudden, 10 years later, we have 80 videos on YouTube, with 2 billion views, 10 albums with Sony, 20 million followers. And we still haven't sold a piano. <laughs> it, it's funny how it worked out the way it needed to work out, which was the videos were what were right. we what resonated with people
1: and when you watch those videos I mean it's true you you have pianos all over the place so first Mike you know having a a broadcast journalism background I'm like they set up that shot how did they get that piano there
0: like are are you helicoptering a piano there are you I always complain to John I'm like why does everybody always ask how we got the piano there how did we get the cello there why doesn't anybody ever ask that you
1: know I'm sorry how did we get the cello there and the piano Jason thank (laughs) you (laughs)
0: Well, just so everybody knows, I carried it myself. So (laughs) I know I'm always joking about that, but we have used just about every transport system you could imagine Um, a crane, a truck, a golf cart one time, a, a helicopter one time. I mean, just about everything you can imagine to get this piano. And this, these are real grand pianos. It's not green screen. It's And it's not a, a piano that we've emptied the guts out of. I mean, it's these are thousand pound pianos that we've put that John is actually playing so that you can see every note that he plays relative to the music that you're hearing. And um that we went to great lengths, obviously, to do that, what we were trying to do, and, and I don't know if we were cognizant or conscientious or conscious of the process itself, it was more of an organic, just for fun kind of thing. But what we realized that we were doing is opening people's eyes anew to these instruments that have been around for hundreds of years by taking them out of their concert hall context and putting them in places that nobody would ever expect to see them. So this is part of creativity, right? You do the opposite of what's expected. You normally would see a a piano and a cello in a serious concert hall location. Everybody's quiet. Don't cough. Don't clap between movements. We've put them on a cliff on a speeding train, on a beach where you would never see them. Then what we've done is we've taken the classical piece that we're playing out of its original context and put it in the middle of Taylor Swift or Adele or One Republic. And then all of a sudden, wait a minute, not only the instruments are out of context, the music itself is out of context. And I think that's what resonated with people is they were hearing familiar sounds, but in an unfamiliar way. They were seeing familiar instruments, but in an unfamiliar place.
1: Right. So you do these things and it's all for advertising. But like you said... No pianos are sold, but all of a sudden you just see the clicks come in and the and the viewers come yeah. in. So how do you transition from what was the original intent to pivoting towards there could be an opportunity here?
0: Well, the advantage of that, Jason, is, you know, the cliche is do what you love and you'll never work a day on your life. You know, I, I don't know if I buy into that 100%, honestly, just because you have to do things that you don't love to do. Often, that's just kind of work. I, I don't, I don't know if I know of anybody who truly is enjoying every single second of their work. You know, but but the idea is to find a vocation that is that uh, brings you joy, and it brings you so much joy that it well overrides and maybe even helps you to forget about the mechanical aspects of it, the attrition, the attrition you feel when you're rubbing up against hard tasks and um, things that are setbacks or missed expectations. Um, But really for us, the shift was easy because it was what we loved anyway. So it was just fun. It was actually fueled us when we saw that other people were liking it too. We were the most surprised of anybody that it took off. So it was actually just a bonus rather than an expectation we were trying to hit or a goal or we were trying to achieve. It was more, we just, in, we were loving what we were doing. And I think people could see that and it resonated with them. So we just kept on doing it. We didn't necessarily pivot. We just did more of it and we kept consistent and all of us left our day jobs and committed hundred percent of time to it
1: because there are four of you now, you know, for the, for the casual fan, they may only see mostly uh, you and John. So you know, talk about the, the other two and, and how they came in and their roles.
0: Well, the, the other two are just as important, if not more important at Paul, Van Paul Anderson, who was the store owner, who was the vid, he was the guy that was dabbling in videography and just went all out to try to tell our story, even though it was instrumental music. He was this gifted man at telling a story front to back, by implication, just through visuals, which was such a gift, and he was very persnickety about the way he edited. He was very, very fastidious, and that it, I think it played to our favor. Al Vanderbeek was the cool factor of the piano guys. You know, you had these two ugly white dude dads that were so uncool, and Al was this half Dutch, half poly guy that came in that really understood the cool factor in music and the modern sound. And he was mixing and mastering and, and contributing to the songwriting, and he was what made our sound more relevant. And we could have done that without him too. So really, it was a, it was an amalgam of the four of us. But I think all of us together had all the tools necessary to not have to outsource anything because Al had a studio in his home. So that was the reason why we were able to be so prolific so early on is that we were pumping out music videos so fast to satiate our clientele and to build our fan base because Al had his own studio. Paul had his own piano store. He had a camp. He had cameras. He had editing equipment. John and I had our musical instruments. We had a songwriting experience. All this, we didn't need anybody else. And so that was wonderful to have that ability to, um, to have that encapsulated and on a spiritual note and just so you know I for those of you who are not religious I don't mean to be religious or preachy I just figure if Malcolm Gladwell can talk about God I guess I could do it too however you want to label a higher power or divine presence in your life is totally up to you I support that but for me I'm just going to use the term God I believe that you can pray the right people into your life I believe that you could say a prayer and say will you please help me meet the right people to elevate my work? to elevate my creativity and my craft, to surround me with people that are so much better than I am that I can't help to be better myself. And I think if you're stuck in a place, if any of your listeners are stuck, if you who are listening is stuck, try that. Try praying for the right people to come in your life that will elevate and level up your creative craft. And I know it will happen. I promise it will happen.
1: I love that. And I think prayer is such an important part and meeting those right people. And I know your wife is definitely one of those people because... While we see you skyrocket and everything, you you still have a family. You're you're yeah. investing all this time into building your clientele, creating content. Yet there's a, a there's a very important and a, and a, probably a more important side uh, to you, and, and that's your wife and your family who are obviously yes. probably sacrificing and and you know maybe yeah. struggling as you're away.
0: I think that's such a great question too, Jason. I'm writing a book right now called Entrepreneurship. And it's, it's based on this, this preached fallacy of we have to sacrifice everything to get to Bill Gates or to get to Steve Jobs' status. And I say fooey I say baloney. I don't think you have to sacrifice the things that are most important to you to try to attain something that's ephemeral. I really don't. I think that a lot of these people that we idolize don't even idolize themselves. They don't even want to be themselves. I know of a famous actor, and I won't say the name, you know who he is, that has built a ranch in an isolated part of our nation so that he doesn't have to be around anybody because he's tired of people. He's, he doesn't like his life. He, he drinks himself every night, goes into the bar and drinks every night. So I'm just like, that is not a life I want. And yet we idolize these people really fundamentally. The true heroes to me are the people that maintain their happiness through eternal things and things that are lasting and most important. And that to me is family and faith and 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 that that's i don't again i don't want to be preachy it just is what i found in my own life because i've searched everywhere and i've gone to every part of the globe that you could imagine and everything i found out there is not anywhere near as good as inside the home and we're we're taught we are taught in our industry to make hay while the sun shines And to buy into this lie, and it's not really a lie, it's a half-truth, I'll say. To buy into this half-truth that you have to kill yourself and everybody and all your relationships in order to say yes to everything so that you can be on top of success. You're only as hot as your recent hit, and if you don't have a recent hit, you're cold as ice. And I just think that that is a very unfortunate teaching because I don't think family is worth sacrificing for anything. And I was so close, Jason, to losing my family when I got obsessed with the success of the Piano Guys early on. I was so engaged and so enthused, but I was also so in over my head, trying to read every comment, trying to interact with every fan, trying to come up with new ideas, trying to film new music videos, create new songs. And my wife one day confronted me in their kitchen and just said, this is not what I signed up for. And she said it so lovingly and supportingly. And I I really appreciate... Her willingness to confront me about this, and I, I stayed up all that night. And the next morning, I woke up. I bought the the finest flowers I could find at the earliest morning shop, and I and I put a card on them in the kitchen counter, the same place she had confronted me. And I wrote just two things: I'll change. And I've lived to that to this day. I've had bad days. I've had regressive moments, sure, but primarily, I have made sure that when I'm home, I'm home, and uh, I'm not wall, absent without leaving. And I'm there in support. And my wife knows and my kids know that I love them far before I love my 40 cello collection and my gold records and my sellout shows and my 2 billion views. All of that stuff is nothing, it's nothing compared to getting locked into a 6-year-old girl's hug or just staring up at the ceiling, laying next to your daughter and you're talking about how her day went. There's just nothing better. There really isn't. And so... That's the worry that I have about us preaching, sacrificing everything for success. I don't believe it and I don't think anybody should.
1: So at what point in the Piano Guys journey when this trial took place? Because in 2011 is when you first started posting the videos onto YouTube.
0: That's a good question. I think to my recollection, I would say a year or two in when it when it was such a flashpoint. You know, there was such a catalyzed uh, exponential growth that I just, like, I just couldn't keep up with it. And I found myself, even though I was at home with my family, I was into my phone more than I was into my family. And I will tell you, those moments can, you can never get them back. And so when I find myself on my phone and it's so easy to get pulled in, because again, they're drugs, right? They've, they've, they're, they're built to addict us. That's how they get, they, they get us. And that's fine. You know, we can use them for good things, but just keep that in mind. As I'm into my phone, sometimes sometimes, I'll I'll be I'll shake my head and be like what am I doing? I'm looking at Instagram, I'm looking at somebody else's Hawaii vacation when my darling daughter is right in front of me and her eyes are glowing. So I put my phone down and I stare straight in the eyes. I look her straight in the eyes and just say, "Hi, I love you." And that feeling is so awesome. It's so great that it's so much more dopamine and so much more lasting rather than ephemeral joy. That I'm just like, why am I not doing this more often? And so, and it's hard to do. I, I'm 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 not saying I'm perfect at this, but really, as much as I can, I'm trying to make sure that I'm not robbing myself of this wonderful time, nor robbing my spouse or my wife of that wonderful time together when we're together.
1: And how old are your kids now?
0: So now they are ages ten. Uh, I have a 18 year old boy, 15 year old girl, 13 year old boy, 10 year old girl.
1: So they, I mean, they were young when, when this all started and some of them were, weren't even born.
0: Yeah, exactly. One was, uh, my wife was pregnant with our youngest when this really started to take off. And, uh, to her credit, she actually drove herself to the hospital while in labor <laughs> because I was heading off on tour to have that baby. And I turned around immediately when I heard she was in the hospital and I didn't, I didn't, I, I ditched tour. And still to this day, there are some people that are upset at me for that, but most people understood they're good people. And, but man, I mean, maybe at the time I was like, gosh, should I really like not show up to these shows? And yes, people bought tickets and John was so good. He he went and just did the show by himself, which was courageous of him. But man, where else would I want to be? You know, right. I mean, that's what we got to be. <laughs>
1: right. So being that, you know, you are an active member of the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, and knowing kind of the culture and how things work, is it difficult to be kind of a celebrity in your ward, I know you probably don't think of yourself as a celebrity, but, you know, you are. You're well known. Everyone knows your music. And the piano guys are famed and, and renowned. But, but what is life like for you, you know, when you're trying to live your personal life?
0: You know, I, I am so grateful. I think God has really uh, has been able to strike a balance with me. Um, and it's been so good. He didn't give me the success I wanted when I wanted it. And thank goodness. I think it would have been a wave that swept me off my feet, pulled me in the undertow, and I would have been out forever. Um, I wanted, I, I had a band, like I had a band in high school and college. It was called the Stevens Band because there were two of us that were named Steve. And we were convinced that we were going after worldwide success. And we wanted it for the wrong reasons. And I'm so grateful that didn't happen then. It happened after I had a wife and children to remind me every day how not cool I am, you know, so that I could stay grounded. And um, I will tell you, God has, has, has been able to strike this wonderful balance where I'm just famous enough to make a living, but plenty obscure enough to have a life. So yes, I get stopped once in a while. It doesn't happen all that often. And, and the wonderful part is they're in love with my music, not me. Like I'm not a Justin Bieber. I don't know how those dudes do it, man. I feel so, so bad for them. Honestly, I would not want that life. But it's honestly most of the time it's kids and chill and, and parents that are like, you know, we you motivated me to play my instrument. So it's really fun like that, rather than I love you. I have your poster in my, you know, on my wall. But it's not like that. So I think for me, I have found a ward. And this has been another blessing. I think God totally guided this. I have found a ward that for whatever reason, I don't know how they've done it, is a very, it's it's a semi affluent ward, very successful people. That have determined that God is the reason for their success, not themselves. And so, when I moved into that ward, they were just like, "Oh, your piano guys! Oh, that's fun. That's great. That's wonderful." And and that's how I want it. That's how I want it. Rather than like, "Oh my goodness, you're so amazing!" You know. We shouldn't really uh, immediately directly proportionalize or or assign credibility to success. You know, I I don't know if we necessarily need to do that all the time. It's more about I I find my greatest teachers are the ones that are most humble and the ones that that are kind and um, considerate and um so and and i've discovered you really don't fame is not directly proportional to impact like i've seen people make impacts that are so powerful without being famous and i think we sometimes wait to try to make our mark on the world until we're famous but i think we have to understand that it's this jesus's way is one by one and we have to understand that impact is not proportional to fame so um i think for me it's it doesn't I'm not bothered by it too much. My family sometimes maybe will be if somebody's a little less considerate about kind of leaning on us heavily when, heavily when we're in the middle of a grocery store trying to buy ice cream or something, you know?
1: It's melting, but guys. <laughs>
0: it's melting, right? But generally, people have been really considerate and I don't think it's been overwhelming.
1: What about the the fact internally? And maybe you don't have this, but I, I think as humans, we we want to be liked. We want to be appreciated. We want to be, you know... There's there's a certain aspect to it. How do you keep that in check, knowing that you do have some of that?
0: I want to give a shout out to Wayne Peterson. He's one of my mentors. He's in my ward, and he is the kindest man. And I was talking to him about this problem. He's in his 80s, and he's just been one of those men that everybody's looked up to. And uh, I I bemoaned to him this fact of like, okay, there's there's the two great commandments. And they are, uh, Jesus said, it's love God and then love your neighbor, right? Well, I think that there are two opposites to those commandments. And uh, we learn about them in the Doctrine and Covenant scriptures. It's, uh, many are called, but few are chosen. Why are they not chosen? Because their hearts are set so much upon the things of this world, and they aspire to the honors of men. I think those are the two polar opposites of the great commandments. I call them the great co-brandments because it's almost like the adversary is trying to co-brand them to make it feel like they're the great commandments. Because instead of loving God, we're loving things. Instead of loving others, we're trying to get them to love us. So I think we could fall into that trap of getting other people to love us. But my friend Wayne said, that's not a bad thing if it's bridled. Because it motivates you to be kind and to be friendly and to, to reach out to people, and to find out what they like, and talk about what they like, you know? And so he just said there's a two-sided coin, and you've got to keep it on the one side of the coin as much as you can, because the other side can be nefarious. One side is you're really trying to be likable because you're trying to lift others. The other side of the coin is you're trying to be likable so you can lift yourself. But we've got to be, like Christ said, lose ourselves in order to find it. And the way to do that is to focus on how you're building up others rather than building up yourself. And I'm lousy at this. I really am. Like honors of men is a real weakness for me. I like being really liked. And sometimes that flips over to that side of the coin. That's that's a bit of an undertow experience like we ta- I, ta- I talked about earlier. But I have found that with prayer, with concerted effort, with practice, with awareness, self-awareness and mindfulness, you can overcome this gradually albeit but that's why our lives are fairly long or, or tend to be because we have this opportunity to be like okay why am i doing this my wife is such a good example as we're having this great conversation this is, i've never told this story before jason this is fun to tell the story we're <laughs> sitting, sitting around the other day and this is very vulnerable and i'm ta- i've been doing a lot of talking about i'm doing more keynote speaking i'm doing a lot more lecturing because i i've been getting so much motivation out of our concerts are typically 70 to 80% music, 10, you know, 20% storytelling, and I've loved learning to tell stories because I think it's so powerful. Right. I love them myself. I love a good story myself. So I'm flipping that in my keynote. I'm bringing my cello along, but I'm doing 70% storytelling, 30% music. So I flipped it the other way. And I found great fulfillment and and passion for this. And I've reiterated this so many times with my wife. I think she started to get self-conscious and she's like call I'm I'm not much of a storyteller. Like when we're in a group of people, like I'm not the one that's making people laugh and I'm not the one that's wowing people with stories and the way I'm telling them and and I had this such a strong feeling that she was off track personally and I and I knew why I said and this wasn't correctively. I just I just this was such a cool moment. I said, "Honey, You are the ultimate person to have around because instead of asserting yourself as a storyteller, you have this gift, a spiritual gift of getting others to tell their stories and eliciting the storytellers. So we're, when we're in a group, I'm the guy that's like, Oh, when I was here, I was doing this. He's <laughs> like, will he ever be quiet? But she's the one that's like, you know what? We haven't heard from so and so that's on the opposite side of the circle. So she'll stop the conversation and say, Hey, Kevin, Kevin, what are you, what are you doing right now? Or, or I heard you did this. Can you tell us a story about that? And I'm just like, that is the way to go and and she has a spiritual gift for a li- I have a spiritual gift maybe for storytelling maybe I do I'd like one she has a spiritual gift for getting others to tell their stories and I think that's more admirable
1: and I think that's in- inherent of women they're just so much better yeah. at those things than <laughs> than us too but but part of that is because they're more spiritual than us too
0: yeah that's true good point you know, yeah
1: when we when we started you know I was like man I don't know how you made time for me Steve cuz you're you're so busy but you were talking about you know that you're scaling back uh, on some of the tours you're you're doing. So talk about what the future is looking like for for the piano guys and what your you know your trajectory is and, and the goals.
0: Well I in writing this book called Entrepreneurship, I'm realizing that I'm a victim of my own uh, my own hyperproductivity. I think I'm a very hyper productive person. I get a lot of dopamine out of it. I get a lot of fulfillment out of it, but I think I burn myself out far too often. And so I go through burnout cycles where I burn out and then I have to like really check out for a little while and then I ramp up again and I just don't think that's super healthy so I'm actually trying to really find a way to spin my plates better that's more in a more healthy way I've also had a really big blow to my own person by virtue of some very troubling health news and I won't share the details of it right now, but it's a life-threatening issue that I'm dealing with, and it's also a voice-threatening issue. It's a it's a tumor related to uh, that's in my throat that that threatens to take my voice away. And so I've sort of compiled what does this all mean? It means I need to slow down, back up, reevaluate how I'm spread to. I've spread myself too thin. I need to reevaluate my personal health plate that's been wobbling. And make sure that my family is getting my best creative self, my best self, not spending my best time at work and giving my family the leftovers, not making work home and homework, you know, like that, switching those. And um, I've backed away and I've really kind of ratcheted down tour. I'm trying to find where the arc is in my life. There's uh, Arthur Brooks is this great Christian social scientist that wrote a book called From Strength to Strength, and he talks about how the natural arc in our life will always decline in the end, but we, we panic. We, we try to turn that curve up by, by uh, buying things or surgical procedures or, you know, insisting that we're still young or, you know, making bad choices really that hurt others to try to prove to ourselves that we're still in our prime. And he talks about instead of trying to bend that curve up to switch to another curve, because as we're living, we're developing many arcs in our life. And many of them are still on the way up when the one we're on is on the way down. So for me, that's sort of jumping to this opportunity maybe to write and to speak more um, and to share my message before my voice is gone, whenever that may be. And if God gave me my voice, he can take it away and glory to be glory to be to him. You know, blessed be the name of God. He can do whatever he wants with me. Um, if he feels I'll be better as a mute, my marriage might improve. Maybe I don't know, but uh, <laughs> you know, if he feels I'm better as a mute, then so be it. But for now, if my voice is clear, then I will try to spread my message, which is this message of recentering on faith and family and personal health, and uh, not buying into this hyperproductive American culturalized issue of overworking ourselves and and planning for a retirement that may never come and when it does come then what a lot of people decide when they're left alone with their spouse they don't even know who that is and so they've raised all these children together but they're not committed to each other or or perhaps their health is so bad by the time they get to retirement there's nothing to celebrate so i had a wonderful conversation with a neighbor friend the other day and he's just in a a little bit further along in life and he's just like you know what it's just not worth it. It really isn't worth it to push yourself so hard to make that extra buck or to be that much more famous or whatever. So I've been, just, I've been in, in this adventure right now, the self-discovery of really slowing down, simplifying, balancing better, deciding which plates are in the air, putting down some plates that are spinning that don't need to be spinning so I don't freak out when they're wobbling, put them, putting them down voluntarily so they don't fall and break on their own, which is traumatic sometimes. And, and I feel like I'm in much more command of my own schedule now. It's, it's gradual, and I feel like I'm less productive, but I'm, I'm starting to be at peace with that.
1: And, and I know this is a very personal subject for you and, and news to me right now, um, and I won't dig into the details, but you seem very okay with it in terms of you, you say, like, you know, God, you can do what you want with me. That's easier to say than really to feel. <laughs> uh, but is, is that truly how you feel it? And how do you, you know, get to that point? Because um, that's, that's difficult.
0: Yeah. And thank you for asking a follow-up question on that because I need to be real with you. There have been many days when I don't feel that way. In fact, to be very vulnerable. And I'm, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I'm hoping there are other people out there that can relate to me on this. I had a little bit of time, maybe a couple weeks where I was angry and I said, here I am trying to be a servant, an instrument, quite literally in your hands, God, and you're gonna take that instrument away. You're a know, lot, so that you know, that great portion of that. And so I actually started to do I started to make threats, which how embarrassing is this? But I was just like, Well, God, if you're gonna take my voice away, then I'm not gonna do any callings in church and I'm not gonna do concerts anymore, and I'm not gonna be social, I'm just gonna become a hermit. And I'm sure God I love that we have loving heavenly parents that are infinitely patient and understanding. They're not human. Uh, they're they're not they don't err as humans do when it comes to parenting us where they get super impatient and angry with our silliness and our ridiculousness. I I really think that they took me in their arms and they said, you know, it's okay if you're angry because you don't see the end from the beginning. And you don't see where I'm going with this. You can spend a little time being angry and that's okay. When you feel better, come back and let's talk. And I promise you that I have this. I have you in my arms and I have figured this out. It's going to be great. And I had, I've had days since then where I've had worries and stresses and, but primarily on the main after that feeling of him having me. In his arms, I have felt like I can be okay with wherever he wants to take me. And what the one thing the Piano Guy's journey has taught me is that God can do a whole lot with a whole little. He can make great things out of small things. But if we trust in him, like Ezra Tap Benson said, if we turn our life over to him, he can do so much more with our lives than we ever could and the full quote is beautiful you should post it it's if you find that quote he just goes over all the things that god can do strengthen our muscles expand our capacity just list this long list and i have trust issues because i say well yeah i could have trust in you but this didn't turn out like i thought it was and that didn't turn out like i thought so i've got trust issues and i talked to my friend once jane i I want to give a shout out to her because she's a very good friend Jane Metcalf and I said Jane she's my idol for trusting she just is so good at trusting and I was like how do you trust in God always because she's been through some tough things and she said Steve sometimes I hope so hard that it feels like trust and that's where I am with my tumor I am just hoping so hard that it feels like trust. I am hoping that God knows exactly what he's doing. If I can't trust it entirely right now, I am hoping that this is going to be what's best for me. I'm hoping that he has me in his arms and that he has my best interest in mind. I know it in my heart, but I doubt it sometimes. So when I can't trust, I just hope so hard that it feels like trust.
1: I really appreciate you sharing that because I, I think everyone has that same reaction, but we don't want to admit admit that we have that. Yeah, and yeah. And I don't know anyone who probably would be like, just right okay with it. But to yeah. know that others have struggled, especially someone of your stature as well, to share that, look, I have those same trust issues. I, I was angry as well. I think that is helpful and, and hopeful for people yeah. as well. Yeah. And so I, I really appreciate uh you know you being vulnerable with with all of us on that subject when I know it's 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 scary and we don't know what will will happen
0: you know my my thank you, Jason. My ancestors were in the Willie Handcart company, which we know the story right it's it's this harrowing story of these people that left too late, they left with not enough. and what in the world were they doing? How could God ever let this happen to faithful people that were in his name traveling to a new place so that they could worship him? I mean, my goodness, shouldn't they be carried on angels' wings the whole way? And somebody was, um, so after, shortly after they arrived in the valley, somebody was complaining about it. And they're just, somebody that wasn't in the company, they're like, how could God do this? How could these people walk across? The, like, this is horrible. Like, And they didn't realize that somebody from the company was in the room. And he stood up and with power in his voice said, because of the way that journey transpired, and I'm paraphrasing, because of the way that journey transpired, I now know God. I know him so well. Why? Because you come to know God in your extremities. And I really feel like this to an extent, and I would never I would never um, think to compare myself with those incredible, powerful people, so I wouldn't, but in my own way, in my own pioneer journey, This is an extremity, an extreme moment in which I can better know God and recognize his hand in my life. Whereas if I'm in the comfort zone the whole time, how in the world could I ever understand that? So I'm very grateful for this opportunity he's given me to prove myself, prove to myself that I trust him and can rely on him even when things aren't living up to my expectations.
1: In our initial conversation, when you graciously agreed to be uh, guest on this podcast, you know, you you told me that you made friends with failure in your life, and I think most people would not want that friendship. But why is that a cherished relationship for you?
0: I love that question. Again, I've never been asked this question, so I'd love to expound upon that for my own benefit too, to try to understand what I'm saying there. Failure. Um, first thing to understand about failure for me is that. I don't know if God ever uses that term. I don't know if he does. It doesn't seem like he does in the scripture. I've never seen him use that term in the scriptures. It seems to me in my own life, and just from my own experience, God uses failure and success interchangeably. If failure to me is a a premature label, we slap on success that we don't yet understand. Because failure is often much more of an adept teacher than success. And failure can do what's most important, whereas uh, Ether 1227 in the Book of Mormon, a great verse, once again, go look it up. I'm not going to say it exactly, so I want you to read it exactly. But I give men weakness, I give men and women, I'll add, I give men and women weakness. And why does he give us weakness? So that we may be humble. Well, why do we need to be humble? So that we can be meek and teachable. Why do we need to be teachable? Well, then we can learn how to be happy from the being that knows it best. And if men and women come unto me, I will show them their weakness and I will make their weak things strong unto them. And I've seen that with my ADHD. I've seen that with my inadequacy, with my self-criticism, with my depression, with my inability at times to be a good husband and father. I've been humbled. On many occasions by wrong notes that I played on stage to the extent that I'm ready to be taught and ready to learn and grow and progress. And I think that's such an important aspect of what I'm trying to accomplish in all that I'm doing is to learn that the importance of humility. And uh, I'm having a major ADHD moment because I don't even remember what the question was. What was the question?
1: <laughs> <laughs> how, 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 what have you learned from, from the failures and. Ah,
0: okay. So this is what I've learned is, is, is humility. And uh, for us to be in a humble state is the most powerful place for us to be. And we can either choose to humble ourselves or be humbled. And I think there's, we can act or we can be acted upon. And I've had both experiences and I can tell you one is a lot better than the other. Um, and, uh, so as failure has hit me, I've, I've experienced that wash of fear. And as I've approached new things in my life, like this new arc that I've jumped to where I do keynote speaking, I have had a new level of fear. It's like, it's like when you do repelling, you can repel down a tiny little 10 foot cliff and you're like, that was no big deal. But when you go up to 50 feet, it's a big deal again. And when you go up to 150 feet, it's a big deal all over again. I've experienced that with playing small concert halls, then Carnegie, then Royal Albert, then Sydney Opera House. You know, again and again, I feel these fear-based experiences that I don't think you should quash fear entirely. I think you just learn to live with it and use it to your advantage and make friends with it rather than... Pretend it's not there because then we just suppress it and I think it comes out with earnestness and 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 beats us to death So I think failure is the same way I think we make friends with it by understanding that it's a critical part of our lives and our learning and our success eventual success so for me Having failure as one of my friends, it's kind of like having that friend around you that's not a yes man. That's not just like you're amazing, you're awesome, your ideas are the greatest. Your every cello note you play is great. I kind of need someone to say, "Hey, you really need to work on your thumb position in your cello." You you don't you're kind of pitchy, you know. So I kind of need that friend to really truly tell me where I need to improve. And that's what I've tried to learn with failure. Is I I sort of made him a constructive criticizer. Of me, so that I can understand where I need to improve and to be better.
1: I love that, and, and that's such a, a wonderful perspective, uh, Stephen. You know, we've talked about a, a lot of the great things you've done, and you, you know, you've, your gold records, sold-out concerts, billions of views on, on YouTube. But when you look at your own life, and, and you you know, maybe picture yourself as an angel looking down at, at yourself, how how is it that you really measure success in your life?
0: Hmm. Great question. I think everybody has their own definition of it. And I would tell you this, and I just thought about this the other day. Um, I was reading in the book of, it was Alma 36, which is such an awesome chapter. Those of you who know the Book of Mormon, go read Alma 36. And those of you who don't know what the Book of Mormon is, go find a Book of Mormon and read Alma 36. It's a chapter Alma and a 36 chapter in Alma. It's Alma talking to his son, Helaman. And he's talking, he's relaying this experience he had when he was totally making all the wrong choices and was turned around by the hand of God and turned his life over to God and knew the contrast between where God had him now and where he once was. And if anybody knows how to trust God, it's Alma. Because of what he experienced. So what is he gonna tell Helaman? And I was like, I even though I'd read it like 20 times, I was so excited to hear his words when I was reading it. And he's talking to Helaman and he says, Oh my son, in your youth, I'm gonna, I'm actually gonna read it because my paraphrasing wouldn't do it justice. If you don't mind, I'm just gonna spend Please. a couple seconds looking this up, up because it was so powerful to me. And it and it's it's in direct answer to your question of if I'm looking down on myself, how do I measure success? And I'm gonna I'm gonna come around to that after I read this to you. So um, he says, and now, and you can hear the urgency as a father to a son in his voice. He wants so badly. He doesn't just say, "Hey, Helaman." He says, "And now, oh, my son, Helaman, behold, thou art in thy youth, and therefore." And I wish we could know the original words of how he said this because I bet it was so heartfelt. I beseech of thee, I'm begging thee, that thou wilt hear my words and learn of me. Please listen to what I have to say. For I do know that whosoever, put, whosoever shall put their trust in God shall be supported in their trials and their troubles and their afflictions and shall be lifted up at the last day. I can hear my father saying this to me. Oh, Stephen, I know that whosoever shall put their trust in God, no matter what tumors come your way or what lack of success or whatever you're dealing with or depression or inadequacy or anything, whosoever shall put their trust in God shall be supported in their trials and their troubles and their afflictions. And my sign of success, Jason, is if I can get my kids to understand that. That's it. That's my one measure of success in my whole life. If I can convince them and beg them as Alma did to Helaman, please just trust in God. And if you do, in as much as you trust him, he will support you and lift you.
1: That's Stephen Sharp Nelson of The Piano Guys. And no, he did not give himself his middle name, The Sharp actually has nothing to do with the musical notation Sharp. It's actually the name of his ancestor, Adam Sharp, who helped establish the Salt Lake Valley, including the building of the Salt Lake City Temple, where Stephen and his wife, Julie, were married. You can see the Piano Guys tour schedule on their website, www.thepianoguys.com, and be sure to connect with them on all their social media platforms using the handle at Guys. Last question, when is the book coming out?
0: Oh, I don't know. I'm like like nine chapters in and and, and it's one of those things that I keep putting off and I didn't want to sound uh, self-promotional about it. It's just, it's a journey that I'm taking. It's one of those things that's autotelic and I love doing things that are autotelic in my life because even if the book never comes to fruition or is never published, I'm learning so much and enjoying so much through the process of it that it's less about the product and more about the process.
1: And we'll close out this episode with the audio of one of their most popular YouTube videos, One you have to watch because it's really quite amazing how they perform it. It's their rendition of One Direction's song, What Makes You Beautiful. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time. New episodes come out every second and fourth Monday of the month.